Well, good morning, everyone. It is a delight to be here this morning. Thanks so much for the invitation. It's great that you're continuing on in the study of uh, the Acts of the Apostles. So if you will, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 21, and we'll try to uh, work through uh, the passage before us. So let's look at uh, Acts chapter 21, uh, and we'll just read uh, certain portions as we work our way through the, the, the passage. Uh, and leave it to you uh, in your quiet time and uh, to read uh, further on in Acts as you go through this study. Acts chapter 21, let's read the first seven verses. When we had parted from them, now this is Paul and others traveling with him, uh, on their way to Jerusalem. This is his. Uh, this is very close to his heart, to be in Jerusalem, to be with his people. And so he uh, and his group departed, and when they had set sail, we ran a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Petra. And having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we came in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. After looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. This is not the first time Paul's been warned not to go to Jerusalem. So just keep that in mind. Verse 5, when our days there were ended, we left and started on our journey while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city. After kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. Then we went aboard the ship, and they returned home again. We trust the Lord to add his blessing in the reading of the Scriptures. In verse 1, departed. That word carries with it the idea that they tore themselves away. Paul had poured his life into the ministry at Ephesus. I think he was there for about three years. And so to depart carries with it that idea of being torn away. Verse 3 and 4, they landed at Tyre. Now, we're not told uh, that uh, how that church was planted in Tyre. But it reminds us that the book of Acts provides us just a a glimpse, a partial picture of the early church history. And then we made remarks that the disciples told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. Now, perhaps this was a human interpretation of the Holy Spirit prophecy of the pending danger. Verses 5 and 6, despite the pleas of the Christians there, Paul and his companions continue on to Jerusalem. And I really believe that Paul, in his heart of hearts, was convinced that indeed this was God's will. Now keep in mind, this is not the first time he's been told not to go to Jerusalem. Now it's interesting, they're walking with strangers. And it's not unusual for others to join them in this walk, especially as they walk toward the boundaries of the city. 
But what is very interesting and worthy of note is that the practice of kneeling and praying together is uniquely Christian. I can uh, remember at least missionaries talking about when they departed to go to where the Lord had called them to go, not unusual for people in the local fellowship to join with them, taking them to the ship, taking them to the airport, and bidding them adieu. Here, it's very interesting to note that they, the shores knelt down to pray. Very uniquely Christian. And I think in verse 7, it must have been a wonderful for Paul and his companions to find Christians in virtually every city that they stopped. I think this shows the, the, uh, the expansion and the deepening of the Christian movement across the Roman Empire. Again, a wonderful testimony. Christians were everywhere. What a great encouragement this had to have been to Paul and his team. In verses 8 and 9, we actually go back to, uh, and, and let's, let's just read that. On the next day, we left and came to Caesarea and entering the house of Philip the Evangelist. There's a neat title, Philip the Evangelist. Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now, this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. We go back to Acts chapter 8, and you've already covered this, and it tells us that after Paul's work, uh, sorry, after Philip's work, in bringing the Ethiopian uh, eunuch to faith, uh, he preached throughout the coastal region, uh, ended up in Caesarea. And many years later, he's still there, faithful servant, and given an interesting title, Philip the Evangelist. He was known to others by the good news that he proclaimed and presented to others. News about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross at Calvary. And then we come to verses 10 to 14. As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming down to us, he took Paul's belt around his uh, and bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we, as well as the local residents, began begging him not to go to Jerusalem. Not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am already not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking this is the will of God, the will of the Lord, and it be done. So we see these multiple warnings, the warnings from the Holy Spirit. And we would look at that and we read that and we say, Paul, what's the matter with you? Why aren't you taking and heeding the warning of your fellow believers? And I've never stopped to really consider that these warnings from the Holy Spirit were intended to prepare Paul. They were intended to prepare him, not to stop him. It's been said that to choose to suffer means that there is something wrong. 
But to choose to do God's will, even if it means suffering, is a very different thing. I mean, no healthy believer will ever choose to suffer. But healthy believers will certainly choose to do God's will as his very son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we've had opportunity to remember this morning. whether it means suffering or not. So this was pretty interesting. The warnings from the Holy Spirit were intended to prepare Paul, not to stop Paul. And it's very easy to think, Paul, what is the matter with you? This is what's going to happen. Why would you subject yourself to all of that? Well, think about the Savior that Paul was willing to pay this price for. Think about the message that brought this kind of willingness. We might ask the question, was it the Holy Spirit or was it his spirit, meaning Paul's? I mean, time and time again, we'll read in Scripture and we'll certainly admire his discernment. He was a man committed to prayer and he had a passion for God's word. He had a passion for understanding the leading of the Holy Spirit. But we also recognize that Paul at times was very compulsive, and it was his spirit, not the Holy Spirit, that was working. And what was it that compelled him to want to go to Jerusalem? Well, he wanted to preach the gospel to his own flesh and blood. The Feast of Pentecost was at hand, and many Jews uh, were going to be there. He just had a passion an overwhelming passion to preach and to reach his country. He was resolved to be there. And regardless, resolved to even go under the very real possibility that he would face imprisonment, even the possibility of death. But if that was God's will, he was committed to do it. Further, he had collected gifts from Macedonia and Acacia, And they were intended for the church of Jerusalem. Paul was intending to make sure those gifts got there. And since Paul would not be persuaded, his friends ceased their appeals and finished that discourse by simply saying, let the will of the Lord be done. And so we pick up the reading again, and we see that uh, verse 15 After these days, we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Manasin of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. And after we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all of the elders were present. And after he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you, and they are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have have come. 
Therefore do this, that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourselves along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and all will know that there is nothing to these things which they have been told among you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. And so Paul finally reaches his destination. He's warmly welcomed by James and the elders of the church. They gladly receive the gifts from the Gentile churches, and Paul begins to testify one by one all the things uh, that uh, had occurred among the Gentiles. And when they heard it, verse 20 says they glorified God, but they also couched that with some concerns that they had. There was a rumor that had been going around, and it was gaining strength and circulating among the uh, Jewish Christians that Paul was teaching against the law of Moses. It was a false rumor. Paul would never teach uh, anything that was contrary to what he had grown up and abandoned the, the teachings of Moses. But what he did teach was that the Gentiles should not be subject to the Jewish practices. And so we'll just pause here for a moment. How do you respond to false rumors? A rumor is started. It happens to involve you. How do you respond to false rumors? I dare say that there might have been a time when Paul might have defended his position. Here he had been misunderstood. Accusations had been made that were unfair. The Jews, he would think in his mind, simply did not know what they were talking about. And so Paul listened to the advice given by those gathered at the home. And they submitted a plan. We see that in verses 23 and 24. Because the Jewish Christians took great care in Paul's life, and they were keen to clear up this difficulty that they had with Paul. And so they suggested, listen, we have four men. Go into the temple with four young men. These are the ones who had taken a Nazarite vow. Pay their expenses, Paul. Pay their expenses until they have completed the purification rites. Shave their head as prescribed by the law. And Paul thought, okay, this is something that I can do. And some would say, wow, was was Paul wrong in submitting to this plan? I mean, was he putting himself back under Jewish law? And of course, we would come to understand, no, this is just Paul being Paul. When he was with the Jews, Paul became as a Jew. When Paul was with the Gentiles... Paul became as a Gentile. Let's look at verses 27 to 29. And this is now after he had subjected himself to the plan. And after, verse 27, it says, when the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, make sure you understand, we're talking about another audience, the Jews from Asia. The Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all the men everywhere against our people and the law in this place. And besides, he even has brought Greeks into the temple 
and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him in to the temple. The Jews from Asia. It's not the Jews in Jerusalem. It's the Jews from Asia who start this trouble. Now, the capital of the Roman province of Asia was Ephesus. And it's not unreasonable to presume that the same Jews who caused the disturbance in Ephesus and ultimately drove Paul out of Ephesus were hot on his trail, stirring up trouble, trying to destroy the work of Paul. Well, what happened in Ephesus? Well, the gospel had made a powerful impact. In fact, the idol-making trade in Ephesus had virtually been turned upside down. Scriptures don't tell us, but it would not surprise us if we could go back in time and understand that uh, Demetrius, who had begun the revolt in Ephesus, and that he and Alexander the coppersmith probably were part of that company of Jews from Asia. And these non-Christian Jews from Asia longed for an opportunity to get Paul. Why? Well, their numbers in Ephesus were diminishing. Thousands had turned to Christ as a result of the ministry under which Paul was there for. And so they're hot on his trail. They come, they see him, and they stir up the crowd. They say, men of Israel, help us. And two charges were levied against Paul. This is the man who was teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law of this place. And furthermore, he's brought a Greek into the temple. And as a result, defiled the temple. Trophimus, an Ephesian, was presumed that Paul had brought him in to the inner courts of the temple. Greeks were only allowed in the outer courts. The inner courts were for Jews only. Now, some years ago, an archaeologist exploring the ruins of a Jerusalem dig actually dug up the actual copper plaque which had been affixed to the wall that divided the court of the Gentiles from the intertemple courts available only to Jews. And it stated, both in Greek and in Hebrew, that any Gentile daring to set foot beyond this wall was subject immediately to the penalty of death. But let us be reminded, let us be assured that Paul would never, never, never violate temple protocols. And then we might ask ourselves the question, is this the beginning of trouble that the Holy Spirit was warning Paul of? The Holy Spirit knew that troublemakers were going to be in Jerusalem. Perhaps Paul could just not see it. And besides, Paul 
had free and open access to every Roman city to preach the gospel. Well, we go to verse 30 uh, through verse 32. Then all the city was provoked. Now, you just it's not hard to imagine what's going on. You have the Jews from Asia have stirred up the crowd, and that is uh, summed up for us in verse 30. Then all the city was provoked, and the people rushed together. And taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. And while they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Can you just picture the confusion that was taking place? Verse 32, at once he took along some of the soldiers and the centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The crowd was enraged. Enraged by these charges, which indeed were very false. And so the crowd, in a frenzy, pounced on Paul, knocking him down, hitting them with their fists, kicking them, intent on beating him to death. And they probably would have succeeded if God had not intervened. It's no mistake that Roman guards were positioned along the outer wall. And when they had seen what was going on, they sent word to Claudius uh, Lysias, the, the Roman tribune. You'll hear more about Claudius uh, Lysias as you work your way through the remaining chapters. He's, he, he was a high-ranking official, probably a military commander of over 600 to 1,000 soldiers. You'll see his reference up to 16 times in Acts. And immediately the centurions, uh, probably captains of hundreds, maybe two to three hundred soldiers, muscled their way through the crowd and surrounded the apostle. And when that happened, the crowd stopped beating Paul. Keep in mind, this is God intervening at strategic times at a strategic area. Paul was arrested. Scripture tells us that he was bound with two chains, likely a chain around one wrist to a soldier and his other wrist to another soldier. They tried to get information. Who are you? What are you doing? But they couldn't learn the facts, probably because of the uproar of the crowd. And so he, they uh, ordered uh, him to take Paul to the barracks, obviously for the purpose of bringing some interrogation. Soldiers carried Paul as the crowd followed, shouting, Away with him! Away with him! Boy, isn't that reminiscent of some things in Scripture when we think about the Lord Jesus Christ. But it got it just had to be heartbreaking. Had to be heartbreaking for Paul. A false accusation, abused the way that he was treated, and then abandoned by the very people he came to minister to. Brokenhearted, bitterness and opposition of the moment. And the only to hear, away with him, away with him. And it was not to take him away from the temple area. No, this was a statement that would say, we, we want to put this man to death. 
Paul was never closer to death, perhaps, in his life as he was at this point in time. And so we can picture the soldiers hoisting Paul on their, so- on their shoulders to take him away into some, some protective custody. But then a remarkable thing happens. Look at verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Then you are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. But Paul said, I am a Jew of Tarsus of Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand. And when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect. Wow. (laughs) What an astonishing thing. The crowd wants to put him to death. And Paul sees this as an opportunity. He's come to Jerusalem. He's determined to speak to his people. And so he speaks to Claudius Lysias and says, may I say something to you? Now, I'm not sure. I don't know that I would have had the the wherewithal to, when I'm facing death in an angry crowd, to say, may I have a word with you? And, of course, it startled uh, Claudius. In fact, he says, do you know Greek? Well, this Roman officer clearly had mistaken Paul for an Egyptian. And then we get a little bit of insight. Because previously, some time ago, a rebel group of 4,000 assassins led by an Egyptian to the Mount of Olives, uh, promising them that, that he had the power to bring the walls of Jerusalem down at his command. And, of course, he was unable to do so. And the Romans killed most of the rebels, but apparently the Egyptian escaped. It's interesting that they're called assassins because they would conceal daggers in their clothes, and as they mingled among people, they would strike without any kind of warning killing at random in cold blood. But when Claudius heard Paul speaking Greek, Claudius started to recognize that this was no assassin. The Jews were thinking that Paul was to be promoting blasphemous teaching, and the Romans thought Paul to be an Egyptian terrorist. And he says, I'm a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia. And so he was given permission to speak. And imagine this. He raised his hand. I don't, I don't know how that may have looked, but he raised his hand, and a great hush came over the people. And he spoke in Aramaic, the Hebrew dialect. Look at verse uh, 1 of 22. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I'm now going to offer you. What a term of endearment, brothers and fathers. How do you speak? How do you speak to those who oppose you? Well, you you speak their language. That's what Paul did. And that had an immediate impact. It diffused the anger and the hostility of the crowd. And they became just a little bit more receptive to what Paul was about to say. And then Paul simply presented his credentials. So you speak their language, and now you present your credentials. 
He stressed his Jewish heritage. He reminded them that he was trained under uh, Gamaliel, one of five Jewish rabbis, regarded as the greatest of all time. He had the nickname, the beauty of the law, Gamaliel. And he reminded them that he embraced the Jewish law. In fact, he had great animosity toward Christians. He shared their zeal. He says this, I know just how you feel. I felt that way too when I was per- when I persecuted this band of Christians, the ones that you call the way. And he even reminds them that the Sanhedrin can bear witness. He says, I was genuinely, sincerely, and honestly zealous against the Christian cause, breathing out threatening and slaughter. So from speaking their language and presenting his credentials, Paul employs the most powerful form of witness. He tells the story of what happened to him in a simple testimony. Now, he has not yet begun to preach, but Paul is opening the door. He speaks their language, he shares their credentials, and now he's going to give his testimony. It's interesting that you'll find throughout the pages of Scripture that Paul presents his testimony five times. In Acts chapter 9, we get Luke's historical account when he met the Lord on the road to Damascus. Here in Acts 22, we get Paul's Hebrew account. You're going to face Paul's Gentile account when you get to Acts chapter 26. It's also recorded for us in Philippians 3 and in 1 Timothy. And isn't it true that whenever you give your testimony, whenever you give your witness, when you give your testimony of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you and how he has changed your life, it's actually you who become the world's greatest authority on that subject. Now, 30 years have passed since he met the Lord on the Damascus Road, and the crowd that he's addressing has never heard this story. But I want you to pick out the fact that every detail is still etched in his mind. He speaks with conviction. He tells his audience that despite his hostility to Christianity, he was converted against his will. Further, he's endorsed by Ananias. He's endorsed by Ananias. Ananias, a Christian Jew, a a devout observer of Jewish law, highly respected by all of the Jews, comes to Paul and standing by him and says, Brother Saul, receive your sight. Now, Ananias had to have made a very courageous step to do just that. Because Ananias was on Saul's hit list to be arrested and probably put to death. And here Ananias told Paul that the God of our fathers have chosen you, Paul. The God of our fathers have chosen you. Look at verse 12 of chapter 22. A certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, 
came to me, meaning Paul, and standing near to me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time, I looked up at him. And he said, the God of our fathers has appointed you, Paul, to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Verse 16, now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. God of our fathers, Paul, has chosen you. Know his will. Hear his voice. Be his witness of what he has seen and heard. Powerful words for you and I this morning. Know his will. Hear his voice. Be his witness. And then he tells them, get up. Get going. Rise up, be baptized, and wash away your sins. Calling on his name. And don't be confused. Baptism does not purge sin. No sin can be purged by water. (laughs) Sin can only be purged by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is a sense in which Paul was baptized, or when he was baptized, that his past was washed away. I mean, Paul was a bitter hatred of any who claimed the name of the Lord. And yet, having been baptized upon rising out of the water, he was no longer a persecutor. No, he was one called to preach the gospel. And then Paul recounts a vision received from the Lord, verses 17 to 21. It happened when I returned to Jerusalem and when I was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance. And I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. You know, you can almost get the picture that Paul had these folks in the palm of his hand. He had more to share. But as soon as he had mentioned that he would be sent far away to preach to the Gentiles, well, that was too much for that crowd. He offended them. They just could not get their hands around and embrace that God, through a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, would offer salvation to the Gentiles. All, except Jews, were deemed unworthy of God's salvation. And so the crowd roared to life, away with such a fellow from this earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And with that, they were crying out, they were throwing off their cloaks, tossing dust into the air. Very likely that the Roman tribune, the commander, Claudius Lysias, didn't understand the words of Paul. and Puzzled while the reaction inflamed the crowd. And so he ordered Paul to be brought back into the barracks for the purpose of inflicting a scourging. 
for the purpose of getting to the bottom, getting to the truth of the matter. Now, this scourging is far worse than a whipping. Scourging is a brutal and bloody event where the back of a man uh, would be whipped on his bare back with leather thongs that had pieces of glass or pieces of metal, pieces of bone embedded into that leather strap. And as Paul was being tied up with thongs, and I, I, I am picture that his hands would have been posted, uh, would have been tied and posted uh, to a post, or tied to a post. And as he was being tied up and stretched out for flogging, Paul catches the ear of a nearby centurion <laughs> and asks, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Verse 25, let's look at verse 25. But when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him saying, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. The commander came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, yes. Well, the commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, but I was actually born a citizen. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman and because, and because he had put him in chains. Here again, a wonderful picture of God intervening. Earlier, the guard along the wall was sending word to Claudius Lysias. Now, a centurion, after hearing Paul's question, reports to Claudius that Paul is a Roman citizen. How interesting it is that God used the Roman system of justice to protect Paul. God is the one who ordained the powers that be. God used it and preserved the life of Paul. For the tribune indeed was in big trouble. The law of Rome said explicitly that no Roman was to be bound without due process of law. And furthermore, they were not to be beaten under any circumstances, even if they were convicted. And the penalty for doing so was death immediately. And so what the scriptures tell us is that the floggers withdrew immediately. And that tribune indeed was afraid. So what can we take away from such an account? We've really gone rapidly through this this morning, but I don't think we had any trouble picturing what was going on. And the verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9 as it relates to Paul, reminds us, as we read that verse, struck down, but not destroyed. Paul indeed was, must have sensed that he was struck down, but he was not destroyed. <laughs> he knew what it meant to be struck down, but Paul was still standing. 
He was struck down by the very hands of the people that he came to, to serve, the people that he came to show love upon. And I want us to understand that there may be times in our lives that to grow you and me for his ultimate purposes, God will allow us to be struck down. Now, that would not bring any pleasure to any of us. That struck down might look like suffering of some sort. And we need to perhaps deal with those results for days, weeks, months, maybe even longer. But we're assured that God never abandons us. He never leaves us. Indeed, how wonderful the mercy of God. In his loving kindness, he still looks after us. Even when we failed him, God is going to see us safely through to the end. Because God never abandons his people. God never abandoned Paul. Facing opposition never caused Paul to be unfaithful to God's plan. He knew that he would face hostility in Jerusalem, and Paul was very much okay with that. And he might have agreed with the advice of many who said, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. And you know what? I don't think he would have been criticized if he chose not to go to Jerusalem. But Paul would not be driven by compromise. He would not allow disappointment or discouragement and regret affect his passion for the ministry. May that be something that we take seriously and not allow ourselves to be subjected to any opposition that would thwart God's plan for our lives. Troubling opportunities are wonderful things that may come our way. The crowd didn't gather to hear Paul preach, but to bring an end to his life. But Paul saw it a whole differently. He saw it as an opportunity to testify and proclaim how God's salvation transformed his life. And if Paul were here this morning, he would say, let your light so shine. Let your light so shine. And then I would be reminded, too, of Paul's powerful testimony that we find in Scripture more than once, five times. And just as the Lord confronted Paul in a mighty way on the road to Damascus, might it be that there's somebody here this morning and the Lord is, 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 is speaking to you? Perhaps it's time. Perhaps it's time now for you to come to Christ in salvation. Time for you to return from your rebellion, to turn from your rebellious ways and trust in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ who was born a man, the God man, Christ who took the punishment for our sin on the cross as a man, satisfied, satisfied the Father's holiness as God and rose him from the dead. We were reminded this morning in our time of remembering the Lord. This is my son in whom brings me the greatest delight. May each of us be challenged, for those of us who know and love him, to be more like Christ, 
That is to see less sin and see more of Christ. To see less of my will and more of God's will. To see less of what you think and more of what God's word says. Let's pray. Father, in this account that we have of Paul facing some incredible scenarios, I pray that our hearts and minds would be very much challenged by Paul's response. We recognize how easy it would have been to listen to the many warnings, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. And yet, as we analyze we see that this was the Holy Spirit's way of preparing Paul. We're grateful, Father, that he didn't submit to the suggestion and admonitions of his friends. And, Father, it's a powerful testimony to Paul's commitment to you and Paul's sensitivity to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And I would certainly want to pray this morning that each of us would go away from here committed to hearing and acting upon the Holy Spirit. The cares and concerns of this world speak loudly more often. And so we ask that our ears would really be tuned in to the Holy Spirit's voice and that there would be a a commitment to willingly serve you in the ways that you would have for us. For those of us who know and love you, You've left us here as ambassadors to proclaim the love of the Lord Jesus Christ to others. And Father, there may be one or two or more here that know nothing of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, would you bring no rest or peace until they rest entirely upon you? We're grateful for all that are here. We're grateful for those who are tuning in by way of technology this morning. We ask your blessing upon each one. And may all that has been said and thought about and sung this morning bring honor and glory to you, for we give thanks in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.